c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tourette, don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. Welcome back to Fat, French, and Fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. And we are on to part two of the Montreal Massacre, because we are terrible people. Yeah. As far as, like, topics for a comedy podcast go, like, the only way that this gets worse is, like, if we go into, like, Nazi medical experiments. Like, there's there's really not a lot of room to go down <laughs> after Just this. Just Yosef Mengele is where this, this whole bottoms out. <laughs> I I really don't know that there's anywhere darker that we can go after this. Like, <laughs> it's either this or vivisection, and I'm not liking our odds. Oh my god! Yeah, my next topic's gonna have to be like an eight-part section on child trafficking. Like, I really don't know. <laughs> like, how do we escalate from here? <laughs> I feel like I have to atone for this. Like, my next podcast topic is just going to be, like, me leading you through deep breathing exercises. Wearing a hair shirt. Self-flagellating <laughs> with, like, a ring of extension cords. Just. <laughs> that was vivid, Jessica. That was, woo. Fully express your deep former Catholic guilt. <laughs> it's always there. It it does something to you. It really does. <laughs> If you enjoy it, it's a sin. Smiling, sin. Romantic love, sin. Nutella, double sin. <laughs> double sin with nuts inside. <laughs> the hazelnut and the chocolate are individual sins. Ferrero Rocher's. Like, Nutella is just the stuff inside of those. Like, those are just Nutella profiteroles. And for some reason, <laughs> we've allowed a company to convince us that that's a cool thing to put on bread in the morning. <laughs> I'm not against it. Like, I'm not opposed. <laughs> but this is against the Lord's plan. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like kosher, how you're not supposed to mix milk and meat. You just can't mix hazelnuts and chocolate. It's too delicious. Yeah, like, that's always been a weird thing about kosher for me. Is, like, it's it's burgers are fine. And cheese is usually fine. But cheeseburgers are not fine. No. Cheeseburgers are specifically condemned. No, regrettably, my orthodox friends will never know the joy of bacon mac and cheese, but... <laughs> For so many reasons. But they will feel the warm glow of God's love, so... <laughs> <laughs> it evens out in the end. I choose bacon mac and cheese. Uh, it's just, it's so much more attainable than the love of the divine. <laughs> It's like six bucks if you know what you're doing. <laughs> also, while while we record this episode, I'm still browsing through like potential gift ideas for my boyfriend because his 31st birthday is at the end of the month. And apparently somebody thought it was a good idea. I'm just on like a big page full of gifts for dorks. It's literally what I googled. And, uh, <laughs> if he's what listening, I love you. you. Well, uh, apparently someone thought it was a good idea to make boxers that have like the weeping angels from Doctor Who on them. <laughs> so just just every time I want to get down with this boy, I'm going to take his pants off and be like, ah, no, ah, no. Because <laughs> well, if you take his, your, your eyes off him for one moment, then he'll attack. 
Exactly. I'm gonna get so you staring contest with his balls. Exactly. I don't want that. <laughs> Just staring unblinking. That's the only way to be safe. Oh, I really hope he's lying about listening to this podcast. I hope it's like a. Mm, of course, I listen to it, honey. Because <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> I mean, really, he should be he should be monitoring this just for the prenup, just to really explore the depths of your depravity. Have plenty of evidence just in case. Just to know what he's got to get in there. Just so there's if we ever get married, there will be an escape clause. You know? <laughs> she talks about my balls on her podcast. We are done. <laughs> well, now that we've discussed my boyfriend's balls. On the podcast, I haven't mentioned them uh, once, <laughs> but you're thinking about them. I, I've always been very lucky to be completely incapable of picturing things in my mind. Like I can think about things, but I've never been able to like hold an image of a thing in my head. Like if, if I think about shoes, like I think about them conceptually. I've never been able to picture a shoe. Yeah, that's why you don't wear them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, I don't believe you can't in them. picture a shoe because you haven't worn one since you were nine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe in them. They're against my religion, Janelle. But more importantly, every time I say something deeply fucked up, just know that I have not inflicted the same horror on myself as I have inflicted on all of you. <laughs> Comforting. There's no mutually assured destruction in my sick, sick imagery. <laughs> I just, I just like the idea of having a weeping angel on your crotch, like some kind of weird penis guardian. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> but moving on. <laughs> so last week on the podcast, we covered the early life of Marc Lepin, the man who became known as uh, the shooter behind the Montreal massacre. It's quite the claim to fame. But we didn't actually get into the shooting itself, and that's what we're going to do this week, because, you know, you sat through an hour of this already, so you were already going to therapy, you may as well get your money's worth. Yeah, here's the money shot. <laughs> oh my god, no. <laughs> no, we can't make that comparison. Uh-uh. 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 <laughs> what you just heard was Jessica actually booking her ticket to hell. That's... <laughs> They're so cheap on Expedia! <laughs> I was gonna say, this is like the Trivago of trips to hell. It's just you making a crack comparing an anti-feminist massacre to a cum shot. That's it. That's <laughs> that, that boom in the background was the sound of me breaking the speed barrier straight to hell. <laughs> That was me <laughs> drilling through the earth crust spiritually. <laughs> All of your Catholic ancestors are just like churning in their graves. They're gonna start coming up like <laughs> <laughs> gonna strike oil. Like they're aerating the soil. Like it's not it's not good. <laughs> oh boy. Alright, so let's let's get into the murder of fourteen women. There, um, there's mud, there's mud in Quebec just churning. Look, we have to make these jokes to even get through this topic because it's just so horrific. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, uh, we'll see you all in hell, I guess. Um, so unlike other mass murderers who kill for ideological reasons, Mark did not leave a manifesto or a great deal of evidence behind. So we're not really able to pinpoint how long he was planning the massacre when or why he decided to attack the university specifically, or what his plans for the attack really were. 
So this is not like a Columbine massacre where the shooters leave behind, you know, videos and diaries and files and, and blogs and all of that kind of stuff detailing how much planning went into it. We don't have any of that for Mark. All that we have is a two-page suicide note, which we will read to you verbatim. So heads up, yeah. that's coming. Vine wasn't around back then, so you were more limited in the ways you could communicate your genocidal rage. Yeah, I mean, he could have bought a notebook or something, but uh, no, he, he didn't leave any of that behind. Um, yeah. I mean, it's too bad they did. he didn't have a TikTok, because then could put a fun back oh my. beat to it. Is that just like the, the first... Gen Z thing you could think of. You're like, what are the kids into these days? It's TikTok. <laughs> I'm hip. I'm with it. <laughs> Do you not check our subscriber statistics? Our average listener is a 42-year-old woman from New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I don't know what it is about hitting 60 as a woman that just makes you go like, hmm, I wonder how I'm going to die. <laughs> that is fun. <laughs> Great. So now we've alienated our young audience and our new audience. We're off, we're off to a good start. Our old audience. Great. Perfect. Um, but Mark LePin's suicide note implies that he had been planning the attack for several years. It's kind of difficult to confirm that, but we do know that he threatened to do the same thing to the hospital. So he had the idea of, like, I'm mad at the world. Let's shoot in a random public place. That was something he'd been stewing for some time. In August of 1989, uh, Mark filled out an application for a firearms permit. The firearms permit was approved in mid-October of the same year, since Mark had no criminal history and had never received any significant form of psychiatric treatment. It was easier to get a gun permit back then, and Mark is the reason that you can't get one of those as easily anymore. He's, yeah. he's literally the cause of that. Shut the fuck up, <laughs> Shut. Yeah, Mark Lapine is personally responsible for the fact that I can't get a gun, and you should be grateful. <laughs> sort yeah. of? I don't know. <laughs> It seems like a seems like we could have got there on our own without the murder. <laughs> mm, but we didn't. We did not. Mm. On November 21st, 1989, he walked into Checkmate Sports, a local sporting goods store in downtown Montreal, and purchased the ranch rifle variant of the Ruger Mini-14 semi-automatic rifle. He told the clerk that he was planning to use the rifle to hunt spa- small game. Which just doesn't seem sporting. Like, it's right? a big gun. Like, are you going to have to go after some prairie chickens with that thing? There's not going to be much left. <laughs> right? Can you imagine, like, just going out to hunt groundhogs with, like, a Ruger 14 <laughs> semi-auto? Like, <laughs> get out of my way, hedgehogs. <laughs> yeah, if you want to make field ragu, that's how you do it, but... <laughs> oh, I just want if you want to you want to you want to kill call those badgers in style. Oh yeah, so apparently he was. I like like just say that you're gonna hunt large game. It's yeah. Quebec. Just say you're gonna There's go for elk. Everything. I'm good. You weirdo. <laughs> like your Moby Dick hunting like the fucking moose that took your like took your leg. You know, <laughs> whatever you want to say. You're harboring a weird grudge against a particular moose, and you've made it your life's mission to I hunt it down. I think that's Captain Ahab. That's less weird than Not being Moby like... Dick. Moby Dick's yes. the whale. It's Moby Moose. That's right, Moby Dick is the whale. You know what? It's a very long and very boring book. Yeah, there's an entire <laughs> chapter on uh, on whaling. Or on whale yeah, biology, I think. It's, it's the longest chapter of the boring. book. <laughs> <laughs> it's... <laughs> Herman Melville got paid by the word, and it fucking shows. There's like a 400-word description of the color white. 
I've never, I've never read the whole of Moby Dick, and I do not plan to. Nor should you. Nor should anybody. Get the abridged. <laughs> if you, for some reason, attend school in, like, a tiny, old-fashioned one-room schoolhouse, and you were given the choice for punishment between, like, read Moby Dick or kneel on peas, take the peas. Yeah. Yeah, if, if 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 it's if it's read Moby Dick or get beaten with Moby Dick, you should get beaten with Moby Dick. It's awful. I mean, you'll probably be concussed, but you know, whatever. Although I do yes. want to say, when you say like a ranch, what was it? It's a ranch rifle variant. Apparently, a you get there's like rifle. different styles. It's kind of it's cute. Is, is there a Thousand Islands variant? <laughs> is there a the Italian? Is there a Caesar variant? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Gallo- Gallo's humor. <laughs> that would have been a much happier story if he just squirted ranch on some guys. <laughs> just, just like, here you go, you bitch. And then just... <laughs> Listen, they still make the ranch rifle. I don't specifically know what makes a ranch rifle different from other styles of this particular Ruger 14. I think it's the amount of garlic. I'm sure some nerd who listens to our podcast is going to give me like a 4,000 word essay on different types of guns. And it will be Seth. I don't know. (laughs) It will be Seth. But (laughs) (laughs) listen, my family owns one gun. It is for shooting porcupines in the face. It's in the hall (laughs) closet. And that's the only purpose that it serves. (laughs) Specifically, very specifically... For just point blank fucking up a porcupine's day. <laughs> yeah, because it's really expensive to get porcupine quills dug out of a dog's face. So every now and then, one of my parents is just like, Kids, get the porcupine gun. And then we kill a porcupine because we're... <laughs> we're just... <laughs> this is what you're like. Because we live in the Alabama of Canada. If you're not smart enough not to fight our dog, <laughs> then you're not smart enough to breed. <laughs> Listen, it turns out that a small weapon costs less than a vet trip, so sorry to the porcupines. But yeah, um, he walked into a store with a firearm permit, he walked out with a semi-auto rifle, which you absolutely cannot do in Canada today. It's a, it's You can still get your hands on semi-automatic rifles, it's just, it's much harder to do it, and it's much harder to do it because of what Mark LePan did with his particular rifle. Oh yeah, there's a much higher bar you have to clear... There's a lot more red tape around it. It's a little, a longer little more difficult period. than getting a skeet, a skeet shooting gun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mark also began regularly visiting the campus of Ecole Polytechnique, although he had no clear reason to be there. Between October and early December of 1989, he made at least seven confirmed visits to the campus. And to be clear, for people who have not been there, this is not a giant campus where it sort of makes sense for somebody just to hang out. Like, the campus at our alma mater, the University mm-hmm. of Alberta, has, like, 95 buildings and a mall and yeah, community restaurants and gyms. Yeah, I used to live in the mall. Gyms. Yeah, you did live in a mall. It was, it was a little, it was a little strange, but... Uh, I was, I was only a few blocks away from a Burger King. <laughs> you smelled like Chinese food for four straight years. It was, <laughs> I just, I was between a taco and a Thai restaurant, and I'm no longer capable of smelling beans. <laughs> 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 it's, but yeah, it's like it's got like lovely green space. There's like plenty of places just sort of chill. There's a lot of amenities. Like it would make sense to be there. <laughs> like there's reasons. There's reasons to go there. There's things for community members to do. The Ecole Polytechnique is just one giant building, and it's incredibly weird for anyone to just wander in there if they're not actually like a student, a faculty, or a guest who has some purpose on campus. 
Yeah, and, like, insofar as he's not, like, a random homeless per- person looking for somewhere warm to sleep, it doesn't make sense for him to be wandering around. And if he was just curious about the campus, he could have fi- fulfilled his wildest dreams in, like, one visit. Yeah, it's not, it's not a large building. It's not known for its architecture. <laughs> it's basically a giant cube. Like, not to rip on the Ecole Polytechnique, it's a very good school, it has a great reputation. But it is just a big cube. It's I don't, just a lump no... of building. It's weird to go in there and just sit there on seven separate occasions in the course of three months. It's a weird thing to do. It doesn't even um, have the grand style of our old humanities building. You remember how the humanities building was shaped? Yes, it For, looked like a penis. A flaccid dick. <laughs> just, yeah, the humanities building at the University of Alberta looks like a... It does. It looks like a flaccid penis with balls and everything. <laughs> they did, some, some architect decided it was a great idea to make a big round part of the building that has like this long bent hallway jutting off of it and then the school realized that all of the maps looked like dicks and they had all the maps reinstalled upside down which really didn't do anything yeah it's like okay so now it takes like three seconds to figure out it looks like a cock rather than one (laughs) they specifically took all the maps out because people were like hey that's a penis and yeah they put them in upside down it's yeah. What a wonderful building. It has hideous orange carpet from end to end, and, uh, and very on few more windows. than one occasion, I tried to meet up with mutual friends, and they'd be like, hey, we'll be in the taint. And I was like, cool, I know exactly where that is. <laughs> Here we are, in the very ball sack of humanity, this taint of learning. <laughs> it's true. But no, the, the occult polytechnique is a, a perineum of knowledge. <laughs> Oh, I want you to be a wealthy comedian so that you can donate enough money to the University of Alberta that they will let you rename the building the Perineum of Knowledge. (laughs) This is all that I want for you out of life. Uh, I'm going to be their most embarrassing alumna. (laughs) Excellent. Um, It's a promise. I swear this, Alberta. I swear. (laughs) It's a threat, Jessica. We call that a threat. I will shame you. (laughs) On December 2nd, four days before the shooting, Mark visited his mother's house and presented her with her birthday present, although her birthday was still weeks away. He also stashed two bags of his belongings and a note at his mother's house, but she did not discover these items until quite some time after the shooting. In general, Mark was noted by his landlord to be a polite tenant who always paid his rent exactly on time on the first day of each month. However, Mark missed his final rent payment for December of 1989. So we're about to get into a rather graphic description of the mass murder of more than a dozen women. So if you have ice cream on hand, um, now's the time. You might want to just take a moment, crack that open. We'll wait. You know, and you know what? If you've got chocolate sauce, go for it. This is a chocolate sauce kind of night. You've earned it. But yeah, it's about to get real upsetting, and I'm sorry about that, but this is... I'm not. This is Canadian history. Jessica's like, I'm not, I regret nothing. Join me in (laughs) therapy, I'll give you her card. (laughs) She's really good. Just soft, soothing voice. I find it really helps. (laughs) I have my emotional support chihuahua, so we're all good. Except no, she's glaring at me from across the room where she's burrowed beneath my sweater. So on the afternoon of December 6th, 1989, shortly after 4pm, Mark LePant entered a cold polytechnique building carrying a plastic bag. This bag contained his semi-automatic rifle and a hunting knife. 
He went up to the second floor and just sat in the registrar's office for a while, rummaging through the bag and speaking to no one. A staff member at the registrar's office eventually noticed that this was sort of odd, and she asked if she could help him with something, and he refused. After a while, he left the registrar's office and began wandering aimlessly about the building. At 5.10pm, Mark LePant entered a 60-student mechanical engineering class on the second floor. It was the last class of the semester before final exams, and students in this class were making their final end-of-year presentations. When Mark entered the class, a student was in the middle of their presentation at the front of the room. He calmly walked to the front of the room and announced that everyone should stop what they were doing. He then ordered all of the men, roughly 50 people, to go stand on one side of the room and ordered the women, nine in total, to go stand on the other side. Nobody moved, as both students and the professor seemed to believe that Mark was playing some sort of of end-of-the-year prank. In response, Mark fired two shots into the ceiling and once again ordered the male students to go to one side of the room and the female students to go to the other. He then ordered all of the male students to leave the room. Which they did. Because, you know, gun. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of things people will do if you point a gun at them. <laughs> Trust me. Exactly, but this, this becomes a very disgust moment in the aftermath of the shooting. Once all the males had gone, Mark asked the female students if they knew why they were there. They told him that they did not, and he told the women, I am fighting feminism. One of the women, Natalie Provost, replied in French. This entire conversation took pl- place in French. Everything that I'm saying as a direct quote from Mark is a translation. She said, look, we are just women studying engineering, not necessarily feminists ready to march on the streets to shout we are against men, just students intent on leading a normal life. Mark replied, you're women, you're going to be engineers. You're all a bunch of feminists. I hate feminists. Mark then moved down the line from left to right, executing the women one by one. He would shoot, pause, cock the weapon, move to the right, and shoot the next woman until all nine had been shot. It's a note that there was no need for him to actually cock the weapon between shots. Uh, This is a semi-automatic rifle. You do not need to reload or reposition the gun between shots. It will shoot once per squeeze of the trigger. But this was just done as an intimidation technique. He's doing it for Um, the aesthetic. He's 100% doing this for the aesthetic, but this is... This is one of the most horrific shootings, school shootings in the modern era. I mean, it's it's arguably the first school shooting of the modern era, but this is not, you know, when we think of a school shooting, we think of somebody running through the hallways, picking people off in the halls. He lined these women up and shot them execution style, one at a time. They knew what was going to happen to them. Yeah. This is about controlling the moment and enjoying the fear. He wants them to be terrified, and he made sure that he told them why this was happening before he killed them. Despite the close range, he wasn't particularly a good shot. Uh, Six of the women passed away, and three survived, including Natalie Provost, the woman who had stood up to him. She actually went on to be quite an activist in the wake of the shooting. Isn't she still active? Yeah, she is. Natalie Provost is still very active in the Canadian political scene. Um, Mark then wrote the word shit on a student project in the room and went out into the hallway. Oh, very mature. Very, uh, yeah, and, like, they found it afterwards and were like, what the fuck? And then they realized, (laughs) like, oh, the shooter actually wrote this on a paper. Like, why? You just murdered six people and shot three more. Like, what? Did he also scroll a dick on the the chalkboard? (laughs) Right? Like, is this this really necessary? Like, we Um, get it. You have tiny balls. (laughs) You know, you're big mad. We know. But at this point, the building was in a muddle of confusion and chaos as students had heard the gunshots and were panicking. 
And you have to remember when we're going through this story, this is a full 10 years before the Columbine Massacre, which is the school shooting that is often considered to be the first school shooting of the modern era. So in 1989, school shootings are just, they're not a thing. They're not in the public consciousness. They are a decade from becoming a thing. They don't have a conception of what this is like. No, they don't know. They have absolutely no idea what's going on. They have no frame of reference. They don't really know what they should do. And there's people just sort of freaking out in the hallways. This is a time where we have stop, drop, and roll, but we do not have active shooter drills. No, we definitely don't. We absolutely don't. We've only just recently stopped having fucking nuclear war drills. We weren't ready for this. Mark moved down a second floor corridor, opening fire, wounding three more students, and entered another classroom where he aimed his gun at a female student and attempted to shoot her. His gun, however, did not go off. Mark went into an emergency staircase to reload his weapon and then returned to the classroom where he just attempted to shoot the woman. He was unable to enter, however, as the students had closed and locked the door. No shit! (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what he thought was going to happen, that they were just going to stay there and wait for him. Uh, wait, 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 I'll be right back. <laughs> like, hold on a second. I swear this never happens. <laughs> Did you just compare a gun jamming to the inability to get an erection, Jessica? Is that what this is? I felt it was thematically appropriate. Oh boy. Oh wow. <laughs> Jessica's like, I've never seen a penis. But I know it's funny when they don't go well. (laughs) It's funny when those don't work and it makes men angry. (laughs) My penis has always worked exactly as intended. My god, I think Jessica's unlocked gun culture. (laughs) (laughs) You've figured it out. It's all about dicks. (laughs) Penis. I I I once saw uh, a packer. That's almost like saying a penis. Except you can throw them. Yeah, you can't throw a real penis. They still have the dude attached most of the time. <laughs> They're inconvenient to acquire. <laughs> Whereas Packers just cost a little bit of money, then you just have like a lovely rubbery, rubbery penis to throw at whomever you like. I think dildos are cheaper. Yeah, but they're just not as you... delightfully floppy, and you're gonna get- that's actual assault if you throw it at somebody. <laughs> Whereas uh, throw, throwing a dildo at somebody is, like, that's a weapon. Throwing a packer at somebody, that's just delightful horseplay. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, this is why Jessica didn't go to law school. It's like the platonic ideal of a cock slap. <laughs> oh, oh, no, don't take legal advice from Jessica. Do not slap people with any sort of body appendage. Real or fake. Um, don't do it. But, um... Mark, who was furious that he was not able to get into the classroom, fired three rounds into the lock, but it held, and he moved on. Mark opened fire as he moved down another corridor, wounding one more person until he reached the financial services office. A female worker had just finished locking the door, but Mark shot and killed her through the glass window of the door. He then went down to the cafeteria on the first floor of the building, where around a hundred people were gathered and opened fire, killing one woman who was standing near the kitchen and wounding another student. The crowd scattered when he opened fire, and he walked over to an unlocked storage closet where two women had gone to hide from the gunfire. He killed both of them where they hid. Upon exiting the storage closet, he saw a male and female student hiding under a table together and ordered them to come out. They did as he told them, and he let both of them go. 
At that point, Mark got on the escalators and went up to the third floor, opening fire in a corridor and wounding one female student and two male students. He then entered his final classroom, where students were in the middle of giving a presentation. Again, it seems very strange in this day and age for people to just sort of carry on normally during a school shooting and not even pause the class. But, like we've just said, you have to remember that this is the first school shooting of its kind basically anywhere in the world. There's no protocol. There's no evacuation plan. We don't really know how to respond. And they're not even going to be necessarily listening for gunfire. They may not understand that that's what they're hearing. No, uh, very few people have heard live gunfire indoors. So it's kind of a common thing when you look at survivors of mass shootings that they, they initially don't know what it is that they're hearing. So Mark ordered the three students giving the presentation to get out of the room and then shot a female student, Maurice Leclerc, who was standing at the front of the classroom. He then opened fire on students in the front row of the class, murdering two women as they attempted to escape the room. The other students dove under their desks for safety. He moved towards a group of four female students he spotted and shot each of them, wounding three and killing the fourth. He then returned to the front of the room and switched out the magazine in his weapon, before randomly spraying the room with bullets in all directions. The student he had shot and wounded at the front of the room, Maurice Leclerc, called out for help as she lay injured. In response, Mark took out his hunting knife and stabbed her three times in the heart, killing her. At that moment, Mark stood up, looked around the room, and took off his hat. He then wrapped his gun with his coat, said, Ah, shit, and shot himself in the head. Twenty minutes after his <coughs> rampage began, it was over. I know, they're not the most... Eloquent. <laughs> no, it's not the most eloquent last words in the world. I mean, it's a fitting last words for someone who was effectively just a big piece of shit. But yeah, his last words, they, the people who survived and witnessed this said that it looked like it had just suddenly dawned on him what he'd actually done. He, like, looked around the room. It's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> as if he couldn't really believe he was there. Yeah, it was sort of like, ah, shit. Like, and, like a and, more vulgar v- version of whoopsie daisy. Yeah, and and killed himself. He died at roughly 5.30pm on December 6th, 1989, at the age of 25. And at the end of it all, he had murdered 14 women, 13 students and one staff member, and injured 10 women and 4 men, mostly students. At the time of his death, Mark still had 60 rounds of ammunition on him, so it's not clear why he chose to end the massacre when he did. All told, the the 14 women killed in the Montreal massacre were as follows. Anne-Marie LeMay, a fourth-year mechanical engineering student who went into mechanical engineering in the hopes of creating better prosthetic limbs. She had been a constant source of emotional support for a childhood friend who'd been in an accident that cost him the use of his legs. He was her inspiration for trying to help people in his situation. Anne-Marie Edward was a popular chemical engineering student who loved the outdoors. Annie St. Arnaud was a mechanical engineering student who had been killed in the very last class of her degree before graduating. She had a job interview with Alcan Aluminum scheduled for the following day and had talked about getting married to her long-term boyfriend. Annie Turcotte was a first-year metallurgical engineering student who had gone into the field to find ways to help the environment. She was a non-drinker and had an old car that she maintained and repaired all by herself so that she could be a designated driver for friends who did drink. Barbara Dagneau, a mechanical engineering student, was due to graduate at the end of the year and served as a TA for her father, a professor of mechanical engineering at the University du Québec à Montréal. Barbara klutznig Wodajowicz, a Polish immigrant who had arrived in Canada two years prior with her husband and was in her first year of a nursing degree. 
Jean-Vive Bergeron, a second-year mechanical engineering student who was attending Polytechnique on a scholarship and sang in a professional choir. Helene Colgain, a fourth-year engineering student who was due to graduate the following semester and then begin a master's degree. At the time of her death, she was in the process of deciding between three job offers from major firms. Maurice Lagunier, a newlywed who worked in the financial office of the engineering school and was the only non-student killed in the shooting. Maurice Leclerc, a fourth-year metallurgical student and one of the top engineering students at the school. She acted in community plays in her spare time and was due to graduate the following year. Maud Havernick, a second-year metallurgical engineering student and a graduate of the Université du Québec à Montréal's environmental design program. She was killed while presenting her end-of-the-term project. Michelle Richard, a second-year metallurgical engineering student who was also killed while presenting her end-of-term project. Nathalie Croteau, a graduating mechanical engineering student who was supposed to celebrate her graduation by taking a trip to Cancun with her best friend, Helene Colguin, at the end of the month. Helene was also murdered in the shooting. And finally, Sonia Pelleche, one of eight children from a family in a remote area of the Gaspé Peninsula on eastern Quebec. She was the top student in the class and was killed on the day before graduating with her engineering degree. She had a job interview lined up the following week. So all of the women killed in the shooting were bright, accomplished young women, and almost all of the victims were under the age of 26. The aftermath of the shooting was messy, in every possible sense of the word. So police arrived on the scene quickly after the shooting began, but surrounded the building to form a perimeter instead of going inside. They did not enter the building until 6.30pm. That is an hour after the shooting ends and Marc Le Pen is dead. Yeah, I did notice that. That is quite a gap. It's quite a gap, and in the days that followed, they were heavily criticized for this, as numerous women were murdered after the police had arrived on site. The public outcry over the lack of police action caused a nationwide movement for Canadian and Quebec police to completely revamp their emergency response protocols and to develop procedures for intervening in mass shootings. Since we need, like, even a tiny speck of hope in this story, the overhauls done by the police in the wake of the Montreal massacre were credited with saving lives in the 2006 shooting at the Dawson Creek Sejep in Montreal. In that instance, police immediately entered the building to confront the shooter, and the shooting was ended with only one victim killed. A rush of journalists were on site for the Montreal massacre shortly after it began, including journalists who literally came out of retirement just to cover the story. But the police perimeter around the building and the general confusion prevented them from learning just what the fuck was going on. One of the first police officers into the building that night was Lieutenant Pierre Leclerc, Director of Communications for the Montreal Police Department. Before entering the building, he gave a brief press conference outside, telling the assembled members of the press that he was going inside to get more information and that he would report back to them as soon as he had a handle on the situation. Lieutenant Leclerc went directly to the third floor after entering the building, where he walked into a classroom and discovered the body of the first victim to be formally identified, Maurice Leclerc, his own daughter. Oh, dear lord, I was hoping that the Leclerc thing was an accident, but I've nope. been clenched since you said it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's basically everything that can be horrifying is horrifying. It's... Yeah. Jessica's broken. This is Jessica having a complete mental breakdown. Oh, that is a... I don't know what level of fucked up that is. Pretty fucked up. Pretty fucked up? It's pretty fucked up. It's really fucked up. That is ghost pepper level fucked up. 
He said that he identified her by the sweater that she was wearing. Uh, it was one that she had worn while visiting with her parents just a few weekends before. And he said that he noticed the victim and went, wow, that sweater looks familiar, and then realized that that was his own daughter. Um, oh. I did warn you that this story is bad and that it gets worse. Let's just have the dad identify the body. <laughs> yeah. In the middle of an active crime scene. <laughs> Jesus, Jessica. Oh, I don't know if this is obvious, but I giggle when I'm stressed. <laughs> yep. Jessica's brain is broken, so this is a stress response. <laughs> this, is, this is what an average person would be hyperventilating. But yeah, around 7pm that night, there were reports of a second shooter, and police briefly detained a professor who was seen running from the building. It was quickly determined that the professor had nothing to do with the shooting, and that he had merely been trying to run to safety like many others. Incidentally, there are almost always reports of a second shooter in the midst and immediate aftermath of a mass shooting, and those reports are almost always unfounded. Mass shootings are chaotic environments with a lot of noise and yelling and confusion, and it's very difficult for people who are actually in the thick of it to figure out what's going on. Uh, as I mentioned before, most people have never heard live gunfire indoors, and they simply assume that the shots they are hearing echoing around the building must be the work of more than one shooter in more than one location. Also, in many instances, survivors fleeing the scene will encounter police officers running towards the scene with their guns out. And when your whole body is in survival mode, it's very easy to see a brief glimpse of a dude in dark clothing running with a gun and think, Oh, shooter, not cop. In general, news coverage of the immediate aftermath was a mess. And the people who got the worst coverage of the event were the people most affected by it. The residents of Montreal. In 1989, Canada's public French-language news network... ECRDI did not let yet exist, and the Quebec cable packages did not carry English-language news at the time. As a result, people far away from the tragedy in cities like Vancouver and Edmonton were getting live coverage of the massacre, but people who actually lived in Montreal did not start to find out what had happened until The National came on at 10pm that night. Honestly, at this point, I think we've devoted more airtime on our true crime podcast to Quebec language politics than we have to actual crime. <laughs> But it's important, <laughs> goddammit. Context! <laughs> we talk about Quebec language laws a lot, and I don't know how it keeps happening. But we're talking about Quebec language laws. Because one of the people who did not learn the details of the massacre was Marc Le Pen's own mother. She heard that evening that a shooting had taken place, but like many other people, she was not able to learn any details about the event on the day that it happened. She learned what had happened when she came home from work through the grapevine, but the perpetrator's name had not yet been released on French news when she turned on the TV, and she left for her usual evening prayer meeting without finding out anything more. At that meeting, she specifically called for a prayer for the shooter's mother, as she noted that the shooter's mother had also lost a child that day and figured that no one else would think to pray for her. At the time, she did not know that she was praying for herself. She did not learn that Mark was responsible for the shooting until 6 o'clock the following evening. She was at a work conference all day that day, and in the pre-cell phone age, nobody was able to get a hold of her. When she got back to the office at 6pm, all of the day staff were still there, looking frantic and upset. As soon as her boss saw her, he told her to go to her office and wait for him because he needed to speak with her. Oh, that is ominous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, you know, he was upset and trying not to show it, so she said in interviews that he came off as kind of angry. And so she went to her office thinking that she was in trouble. When she got to her office, she had dozens of messages on her work answering machine, 
and when she returned the first call, a friend frantically informed her that Mark had been the Polytechnic shooter. That is some baroque dramatic irony. <laughs> yeah, she said that as she waited in her office, um, and as this friend told her over the phone that Mark had done it, she saw her boss walking towards the office with this look of just, you know, somber horror on his face, and she knew that it was true. Oh, that is Shakespearean. It's bad. It's a really bad way to find out. I mean, it's like better than learning on Facebook, but it's it's worse <laughs> than learning. I don't know. A lot There's of not a lot ways. of better ways. Like, like chainmail message is probably the worst, but it's, it, that's bad. I, like the police didn't tell her. She just it's it's Ooh. like one step above finding out on Twitter. Like it's it's not good. And like most mothers of mass shooters, Monique LePan faced considerable criticism in the days and years after the shooting, and was often described in the media as the mother of a monster. You know, they always blame the mom. They do always blame the mom. It's pretty common for mothers in particular to be scrutinized and blamed for their son's actions after these events, because it's it's always the son. It's, it's always, always a woman's men. fault. Mm. It's always a woman's fault when a man fucks up. Um, yeah, it's it, when a woman fucks up, it's her fault, and when uh, a man fucks up, it all it's also her fault. <laughs> it's yeah. With this, there's got to be a way to blame this on a woman. We will do it. God damn it. The women who were in Mark's life were blamed. The women who were not in Mark's life were blamed. And and the fact that women rejected Mark. Women who rejected Mark were blamed. Everybody was blamed. Monique LePan did not speak publicly about what had happened until 2006 when she published Aftermath, a book about her experiences raising Mark and coming to terms with what he had done. It is also the source of quite a bit of information in this episode. She said that she often agonized about her parenting, especially after her other child, Nadia, died from an intentional cocaine overdose in 1996. Nadia had had mental health and substance abuse issues from a young age, but was reportedly completely unable to cope with the media attention and the emotional whirlwind that surrounded her brother's actions, and she went on to a downward spiral that ended with her taking her own life. You did not want to be named Lepin in Montreal after the events of December 6, 1989. And it's not that common of a surname, so it's no. not... Like, the worst I ever get is, like, the car? Is there a car called Peugeot? There's a Peugeot, yeah. Oh, that's kind of fun. Yeah, it's, it was I the just... most com. I can tell that anyone who asked me that, I'm like, you're a big fucking nerd, because the only reason why North Americans know that car name is because it was uh, featured in the original Blade Runner. Mmm, that's kind of fun. They thought, they thought that was the car of the future. <laughs> but it's a French automotive manufacturer. Oh, that's, see, that's kind of fun. I just get... Oh, Como, like the town, which is just a, a random-ass town in, like, northern See, Quebec. When I hear Como, I think of Robert Como, noted Montreal terrorist and history teacher, so... Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. That's awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Great. Good. Bob Como! <laughs> Amazing. But yeah, Monique has led a quiet life since the massacre and her daughter's suicide, comprised mostly of volunteer work and involvement in her church. She said in an interview with McLean's magazine that she does not blame herself for her son's actions, because it's not her fucking fault. Uh, no. She did not put a gun in his hand and point him at school. But she does wonder how her own role as a working mother might have influenced her son's hatred of career women. It's gotta be pretty awkward when you weren't around much to raise your child because you had to work, and then your son murders 14 women in public because he hates 
working women. That's got to be a bit of a weird feeling. Yeah, it's a little um, weird. It's a little weird. Yeah, it would be it would be a hard thing to come to terms with. She also noted in the same interview that Mark's father was largely unscathed by the controversy and has never had to answer for his part in the tragedy. Which, I mean, if one of the parents is going to take the fall for this, it should be the dad. Yeah, he was at the very least more a more dramatically awful parent. <laughs> I mean, he's the cause of at least one head injury, significant head injury. He was the abusive one. He did his best to instill a whole lot of traditional gender role bullshit in his son. The fact that his father does not share the same surname helped him to avoid media attention. But Monique Le Pen was not the only person to face criticism for the part that they played in the Montreal Massacre. The men who left the room when Mark ordered them out were harshly criticized, both publicly and privately, in the months following the tragedy. Both left-wing and right-wing media figures criticized the men for, quote, abandoning the women and leaving them to die. Many pointed out that there were 50 men to one shooter. Mark Stein, a conservative talking head that our American audiences might know as a frequent guest on Fox News and the Rush Limbaugh show, actually is a Canadian journalist, and he famously commented after the massacre that, quote, The defining image of contemporary Canadian maleness is not Mark Lepin slash Garby, but the professors and the men in that classroom who, ordered to leave by the lone gunman, meekly did so and abandoned their female classmates to their fate an act of abdication that would have been unthinkable in almost any other culture throughout human history. Effect intellectual he... elites. <laughs> yeah. For the record, it's it's deeply unfair to criticize what people do when they have a gun to their head. That's, you know. Yeah, I think there's a whole principle in, like, most the criminal justice system where you're considered way less culpable when somebody's literally threatening your life. Like... <laughs> If you shot somebody because, like, somebody was pointing a gun at you, you would not be considered guilty of murder. So it's hard to say that, like, you are equally gil- guilty as unchivalrous swine for moving out of the way of a firearm. Yeah, so it was very easy for people who had never been in that situation to sit and criticize the men who had. But the pressure and the criticism was so great that at least two survivors, two male survivors, ultimately committed suicide, leaving behind notes that cited their guilt and anguish over the events of the massacre and their own failure to act as the reason for ending their lives. Natalie Provost, the survivor who tried to talk Mark down, made a statement saying that no one should feel guilty for what happened as there was nothing that anyone could have done. So I did tell you, this is just going to keep getting worse. Yeah, that's kind of the consequence of blaming people, like, random people, like, incidental civilian innocence for something horrifying that happened because they were proximate to it. <laughs> Proximity yeah. to chaos and violence does not a guilty party make. And it is so easy to be just a talking head who blames other people for what they did in a situation which no person could be rationally expected to be ready for. Yeah, when you're, you know, safe in your CBC studio, it's very easy to sit there and be like, ah, these effeminate girly men, if I was there, I would have punched the shooter. I would have tackled him and beat him up with my pecs. <laughs> yeah, it's very easy to say these kinds of things. I would have crushed his head between my manly thighs, but you're not there is the whole thing. No. You were you weren't you weren't there. <laughs> so you don't um, know. <laughs> and exactly. like, not even that, but like, yeah, like there was fifty of them, but like 
they're not operating as a unit. Mm. They're, they're not, not a SWAT trained. team. <laughs> they're a bunch of engineering majors. They're not trained for this. They've never had a gun in their face before. They're like, skinny dorks. <laughs> They've never, what are well, they pro- supposed to do? Plenty of them have do, never seen you know? a gun in person. <laughs> they don't, yeah, exactly. They haven't trained for this. They haven't, they don't know how to coordinate this. Like, they're terrified. They think they're about to die if they, if they cross this guy. And they probably are. So mm-hmm. I, like I not think Natalie has a, it's, it's Mark's fault. The only person at fault for those women dying is Mark LePin. He yeah. is the one that pulled the trigger to kill them. It is not I the mean, men who left the room. You can blame his mom. You can blame his dad. You can blame the men who left the room. But ultimately, it's his fault. It is his fault. And the other big controversy to come out of the shooting was a now 30-year discussion of Mark LePin's motives that Mark himself predicted was going to happen. Never mind that this isn't particularly difficult. <laughs> no, on the surface, it seems like Mark's motives are pretty clear. He did leave behind a suicide note, although the contents of this suicide note were not released immediately in the ma- aftermath of the shooting. But Mark literally screamed, You're feminists. I hate feminists. I'm going to kill you because you're feminists. <laughs> in front of a bunch of witnesses while murdering a group of women. So his motives seem pretty straightforward. Like, Yeah, it's almost perfect essay structure. You have your thesis, you have your content, you have your repetition of your thesis and your conclusion. <laughs> it's, it's all there. And, I hate women, I mean, and it makes me insecure. He shouted this at people, and like survivors of the shooting were reported this to reporters on the scene within an hour of the shooting. Like, <laughs> When they were talking to people coming out of the building, people were saying, like, this guy was screaming, I hate feminists, I'm murdering you because you're feminists. Seems like that guy really doesn't like women, huh? Weird. Yeah, Mark was concerned that screaming his motives was not enough to get the message across. So he had a three-page suicide note in his jacket pocket, which was written on the day of the massacre and explained his motives for the shooting. A translation of his note into English reads as follows. Forgive the mistakes, I had 15 minutes to write this. Please note that if I commit suicide today, 1989-1206, it is not for economic reasons, for I have waited until I exhausted all my financial means, even refusing jobs, but for political reasons, because I have decided to send the feminists, who have always ruined my life, to their maker. For seven years, life has brought me no joy, and being totally blasé, I have decided to put an end to these viragos. I tried in my youth to enter the forces as an officer cadet, which would have allowed me to possibly get into the arsenal and precede Lorty in a raid. They refused me because asocial, which is, that's, that's not me making a mistake. That's in the note. I mean, he did say at the beginning that, like, you know, he was writing this at the last minute. You gotta He's in a rush. for miracle errors. There's some, I yeah, think it's we can, a- in the face of the mass killing, I think we can forgive a few typos. <laughs> there's, there's some, it's, it's a handwritten note, but yes, there's, there's some mistakes. He says, I therefore had to wait until this day to execute my plans. In between, I continued my studies in a haphazard way, for they never really interested me, knowing in advance my fate, which did not prevent me from obtaining very good marks despite my theory of not handing in work and the lack of studying before exams. I'm really smart. It's not my fault I failed. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't even trying, but, like, I did really good anyway, and I got, like, really good on my tests, but, like, I wasn't even trying. I knew I was just gonna, like, kill myself. Whatever. Uh, it's fine. Don't look at me. <laughs> um, he goes on, Even if the mad killer epithet will be attributed to me by the media, I consider myself a rational erudite that only the arrival of the Grim Reaper has forced to take extreme acts. 
For why persevere to exist if it is only to please the government? Being rather backward-looking by nature, except for science, the feminists have always enraged me. They want to keep the advantages of women, e.g. cheaper insurance, extended maternity leave preceded by a preventative leave, etc., while seizing for themselves those of men. He's jealous of maternity leave? Yeah, he's really all over the place. I don't I don't think he really understands why women get that and men don't. Um, <laughs> you don't give birth, Mark! <laughs> someone needs to sit this boy down for a serious discussion. Um, You've never had a baby! <laughs> he says, Thus, it is an obvious truth that if the Olympic Games removed the men-women distinction, there would be women only in the graceful events. So the feminists are not fighting to remove that barrier. They are so opportunistic, they do not neglect to profit from the knowledge accumulated by men through the ages. They always try to misrepresent them every time they can. Thus, the other day I heard they were honoring the Canadian men and women who fought at the front line during the World Wars. How can you explain that since women were not authorized to go to the front line? Will we hear of Caesar's female legions and female galley slaves who took up 50% of the ranks of history, though they never existed? A real casus belli. Sorry for this too brief letter, Mark LePay. Has he never heard of nurses? It's, 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 there's like so many things nurses. in this note. <laughs> there's so many things in this note. He's complaining about, uh, talking about, uh, th- by the way, these are things that, like, incels, he's like, women are worse at track and field than men are, so that's why they compete separately, and also men discovered everything and women just want to benefit from it. It reads like you, if you took a big incel subreddit and just put it in a blender. Like, it's oh, just yeah. concentrated incel, is all that this is. For our, our audiences who are not familiar with the term, incels are a group of... They're, they're a community of angry young men online who are very similar to Mark LePant in a lot of ways. They are angry that women will not have relationships with them. They are angry about gender equality and feminism. They very much want to go back to traditional gender roles because they're under the impression that, like, Women were just sort of handed out like goodie bags at a birthday party in the 1950s. Yeah, you were just um, assigned a vagina, Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale style. <laughs> Women didn't contribute anything up until like 2000. Yeah, they think women are stealing their spots, that women are, are taking everything that feminists are trying to keep all the advantages of women, but also take all the men's advantages. There's, there's a large, angry group of them online, and they have discovered Mark LePay, and we will discuss that. But after the suicide note, Mark wrote down a list of 19 names and said, These 19 names nearly died today. The lack of time because I started too late has allowed these radical feminists to survive. Alea Iacta Est. So, to clarify some parts of the letter... Mark uses several Latin words and expressions throughout the letter for reasons unknown, which is part of the reason that the translation reads so strange. When he said that he wanted to send the feminists to their maker, the original phrase used is ad patres. Literally, he wants to send them to their fathers or their ancestors. The word viragos is a Latin term for a loud, ill-tempered woman. When he says that the existence of feminism is a real casus belli, Cases belli is a situation or an act that provokes or justifies war. And the closing phrase of the letter, alia ayacta est, literally means the die is cast. This is a quote attributed to Julius Caesar, and it is usually used to mean that a situation has gone past the point of no return. 
So in the language that he's using in his suicide note, we can see that he is one pretentious as fuck. Uh, he thinks he's way smarter than he is. Um, oh, like he has this grand, like these garbled bullshit mixed with these grand quotes. Oh. Yeah, it's written in like half competent French. There's there's quite a few errors. It's hard to to translate errors into English from French, but it's written in uh, in half competent French, and then there's just these Latin phrases sprinkled all through it. Um, but what's also very telling about the Latin phrases he chooses to use, especially, I mean, alea iacta est and cases belli, is that he's presenting what he's doing as inevitable. As, you know, he had no other choice. That he was provoked into this. I just, I couldn't help myself. The feminist started it. But yeah, in death, as in life, he was a pretentious fuckwit who was obsessed with proving he was smarter than other people. When Marx says that he wanted to precede Lorty in a raid, he is referring to Denis Lorty, another mass shooter who opened fire in the National Assembly of Quebec building five years earlier in 1984. It's kind of strange that Le Pen would want to idolize or compare himself to Denis Lorty in any way, because the two are nothing alike, despite having committed similar crimes. And the crimes themselves aren't that similar. <laughs> Weapon of choice, at most. I mean, they committed a mass shooting in a public building, but, I mean... Mark went out of his Completely way to emphasize it. Yeah. In his suicide note, Mark emphasized that he was not mentally ill and that he had carried out his mass shooting as a deliberate strike against feminism. Denis Lorty, on the other hand, was a paranoid schizophrenic and former army corporal who shot up a government building to protest Quebec sovereignty and francophone identity for Quebec because he had a speech impediment that made speaking French difficult for him, but he also couldn't speak English very well. He is absolutely... No, literally, this guy, his motives make absolutely no sense. He spoke incredibly poor English, and he felt that his inability to speak English was holding him back, but he also had a speech impediment that meant he couldn't speak French very well, and so he decided that francophone identity was bad because he was bad at English, so he shot... Several people. It's it's fascinating. He could easily be an episode unto himself, but he has nothing to do with anti-feminist spree killings. Yeah, he was he was just a paranoid schizophrenic who was angry about Quebec language laws. Not exactly the sort of dude you want to compare yourself to. Yeah, no, a very strange thing to compare himself to because he went out of his way to be like the media is going to label me crazy, but I'm not crazy. Um, I'm not mentally ill. <laughs> Unlike this dude I idolize. Yeah, that guy was nuts. Mark LePain's suicide note was not published until more than a month after the shooting. Police kept most documents and records related to the shooting confidential, despite numerous information requests filed by journalists. It was only released when an anonymous source illegally leaked it to one of the journalists who happened to be on Mark's list of 19 intended victims. Ooh. Um, the victims were mostly journalists, Saucy. activists, there were some professors... Um, six of them were female police officers from the Montreal area. Just a random smattering of women, uh, many of whom were quite traumatized by ending up on the list. I wouldn't know how to feel about ending up on, on that kind of thing. On the one hand, this is obviously terrifying, but, the other, but on the other hand, just a little bit flattering? Like, just a little bit flattering. It would be weird. It would be incredibly weird. I'd have um, mixed feelings. Yeah. But even with the witness testimony of Mark screaming, I hate feminists, and then Mark's suicide note, which basically just said, I hate feminists, over and over again. But in Latin. <laughs> people were incredibly reluctant to declare this an anti-feminist shooting or an act of misogyny. Ooh, okay. 
at a certain point, you're reading a little bit too much into it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that feminist... can't be it. Who hates women? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he said it 18 times, but unless he says it a solid 19th time, we can't be sure. I mean, he said so many other things, like, hello, mother, and I, I'm not feeling well today. I mean, we gotta take this in context. As a proportion of everything he ever said, he said, I hate women very few times. <laughs> God. Uh, I mean, like, feminists and organizations that were fighting against violence against women were accused of co-opting the tragedy for their own agenda, which sounds oh. real familiar. <laughs> um, oh, that is uh, one that echoed through time. Charles Rakoff, a computer science professor at the University of Toronto, because every terrible right-wing talking head is somehow a professor at the University of Toronto. Um, not saying anything about anyone. Pearson! <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, notable human skidmark, made headlines when he compared feminist organizations holding vigils for the victims to clan rallies. <laughs> I'm not joking. I've made I've Ooh. made a lot of jokes in my life, but this guy was dead fucking serious. Just delusioning um, right past Godwin's law. Holy shit! This is pre-internet age. This guy was just balls to the wall, ahead of his time. Have you ever considered that women saying that killing women is wrong are just like the Nazis? Because they're just like Nazis. Right? I know that this is a public vigil for murdered students who had their whole lives ahead of them, who were executed by a man who's screaming, I hate feminists. But have we considered that you're being dramatic and also racist? Have you ever consi <laughs> considered not being such a bitch? <laughs> have you ever considered he that? He said, and I quote, The point is to use the death of these people as an excuse to promote the feminist slash extreme left-wing agenda. It is no more justified than the KKK using the murder of a white person by a black person as an excuse to promote their agenda. Because, <laughs> again, holding a vigil for murdered women who were killed in a mass shooting at their school is definitely the intellectual and moral equivalent of the KKK. I just... I do what? <laughs> and you can just tell that guy thought he was real fucking clever saying that. Like, uh, he thought he was making a brilliant point. The dripping condescension coming off of that one. That like, feels he... like a modern Twitter mm. troll. It is uncanny how similar that is. Just, he thinks he he thinks he's just come up with a devastating argument. Because, like, what point were they trying to make that he thinks is so wrong? That you shouldn't shoot innocent women? Because I didn't think that that was a f purely feminist concern. <laughs> right, and it's like, okay, yeah, the KKK digging through crime statistics to find something that's, you know, sort of matches their agenda is definitely the equivalent of a dude actively murdering 14 women for what he believed in. Yeah, like, and here's the thing. Even if the KKK held a rally in favor of, like, I don't know, animal welfare, like, even if I was suspicious of them, I'd be like, okay, I guess they're not bad 100% of the time. Like, <laughs> I, yeah. like, even if somebody you disagree with in general does something that is genuinely nice, 
It's weird to get mad about that. Mm. Right? And it's like, okay, like, women are scared because a man with a gun just ran into a university, lined up women against the wall, and executed them, screaming, I hate feminists, I hate career women, and now women are scared. Like, no, they're clearly just being dramatic. Like, what? What is this? You're so crazy and emotional. <laughs> Come on. Just you women with your hormones and your feelings. Like, what, what the fuck? You know, PMS, you know, it's cramps, mood swings, a sudden belief that men hate you and want you to die. <laughs> People were really mad that organized domestic violence organizations wanted to call this a misogynist uh, killing. And, and, and that happens with modern versions of this. A hundred percent. Like, there was that dude whose name I don't remember because I refuse to remember the names of these people. It's uh, Elliot Roger. I already know who you're talking about. It's <laughs> yeah, that guy. Roger. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to immediately forget that again, though. Uh, but he, he killed a whole bunch of women. He explicitly said he killed the women because they were women and because he hated them. And then people are like, but what was his real motive? <laughs> Yeah, that guy's I guess also we'll just never a human, know. <laughs> crusty human skid mark. Both of them. But uh, in, in criminology circles, Mark is considered a pseudo-commando killer. There are three types of mass murderers, pseudo-commandos, family annihilators, and hit-and-run killers. Um, the second two are fairly self-explanatory. Yeah, I got that um, from the title. Yeah, among so a pseudo-commando is somebody who kills a large amount of people based on ideology, based on group membership. So among pseudo-commandos, Mark is categorized as a community killer or a bias killer because he selected his victims based on a shared demographic. Just like Elliot Roger, human shitstain. As, uh, as Mark predicted, he was called a madman in the media. Psychologists and psychiatrists were called up to speculate about his mental health, and he was posthumously diagnosed with everything from personality disorders to psychosis to PTSD and attachment disorders. So the thing he specifically said was going to happen in his suicide note happened just exactly how he predicted it, that people were going to blame his mental health. People want a more sensational answer than he just hated women. Because to an extent I understand that, because like, you're surrounded every day by people with like bigoted opinions, and most of them don't go on to kill 14 women. <laughs> And people don't want to admit that this kind of rhetoric is dangerous. No! If you're the sort of person who engages in mild variants of this, then you don't want to be told that this is morally wrong. Or that it's dangerous. Yeah, if you're the kind of person who, you know, sits at the office just, like, complaining, you know, women are taking our spots, women shouldn't be here, they're not good enough, you know, women going on maternity leave. People don't want to take responsibility for the fact that that kind of talk is what inspired him to do this. Like, he really took this to heart, and he decided that the solution was to start murdering women. He wanted women to be too afraid to go to university. He wanted them to be punished. Canadians did not want to admit that Canada had a misogyny problem. They didn't want to to admit that this, was, that this was part of an overall trend, a pattern, an attitude. They wanted him to be, like, a crazy lone wolf who developed these ideas in a vacuum. Nobody wanted to be partially culpable for the ideas that he had. Yeah, because if he's crazy, then it's not our fault. <laughs> if he's a, if he's not a reflective of Canadian society, then we don't have to change. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Amazingly, in 1989, people blamed violent video games and violent movies for the shooting. Again, this is <laughs> 30 years ago. 
Despite and the you're fact still that using ketchup as blood in special effects. <laughs> like, it's fucking 1989. Every video game character is like four pixels that shoots another group of four pixels. It's Yeah, we aren't even to 3D modeling yet. We're not even talking to like shooting polygon people. Like, the, <laughs> the closest you get to depicting a real life human being is fucking Mario. I I had I grew up playing these like games on a floppy disk that I absolutely loved, uh, the Sierra's Quest for Glory series, where you oh, just yeah, run around. Oh yeah, you can text Murphy shit. And those weren't hadn't come out yet. Those didn't come out till the early '90s. But yeah, they're oh, really fun. Yeah. You get to if anybody out there has like a DOS box or they're on Steam actually. You should look up Quest for Glory. They're like a delightful little role play game where you type in the commands, and if you say rude things, they scold you. It's fantastic. Where, you know, people are still playing in arcades. Those are still a thing. So, to go... And, and he, he rented a lot of war movies. Like, he was very obsessed with war movies. And they just... They needed something else to blame. Other than the fact that, like, Canada has a deeply misogynistic side. Conversely, though, people who were very happy to embrace Mark LePin and the Montreal Massacre as an act of anti-feminist violence were... Surprise, surprise, anti-feminists. Many anti-feminist groups in 1989 specifically stated that they did not support the shooting, um, they did not condone it, but they saw it as a natural consequence of women gaining power an example of why feminism was bad for society. It's this bullshit cop-out excuse that persists to this day that, like, don't make me shoot you. <laughs> yeah, when men get emasculated, they get angry, and, you know, what you gonna do? They're just, they're gonna, sh they're gonna shoot people. That's just what men it's do. Just um, a natural... It's, 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 it's natural, it's normal, all young men do it. <laughs> and, and then others just openly celebrated the massacre. Mark LePin to this day has been idolized and glorified by the so-called incel community, the so-called manosphere, all these male-centered groups that are populated by men who have problems with women, who have problems with the relationships, who feel that women have taken their place, have taken everything away from them, uh, he's become a bit of a folk hero alongside, like we said, Elliot Rogers, who committed a mass murder suicide against women because he couldn't emotionally cope with the fact that women were better than him and didn't want to date him. Interestingly, though Canadian pundits were eager to blame this shooting on mental illness, when push comes to shove, it turns out that we were more willing to blame guns than we were to blame misogyny. <laughs> so, uh, we went... Canada went right in on its gun laws after the shooting. The idea that the shooter was able to obtain a semi-automatic rifle at a random sports store in downtown Montreal without any waiting period after filling out a very basic application should feel very weird to anyone in our age demographic who grew up in post-polytechnique shooting Canada. Uh, mm -hmm. Anyone in our audience who, like us, was born and raised after the Montreal Massacre and has never known pre-Montreal Massacre Canada should find that very strange. No, um, just the concept of a sports store having guns. Like, I guess it makes it makes sense in that, like, oh yeah, it's a sporting good. <laughs> like, you know, hunting, sports. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's, I mean, I, the first time I ever went to the United States, I went to Montana, which was every American stereotype I ever dreamed of. You just go to fucking... <laughs> Oh, you cross the border and then there are more flags than people. 
Everywhere you go is guns. It's like Walmart has guns, Kmart has guns, the sporting goods store has guns, Payless Shoes has guns, guns. Best Buy has guns. Everybody's got guns. You go to the bank, you sign up for a bank account, they give you a gun. Like, everybody gets guns. (laughs) It's free when you open a savings account. (laughs) It's probably actually harder to get a gun here in New York State than it is to get a gun in Canada. Oh, yeah. um, (laughs) If you go into a sporting goods store in Canada, they have running shoes and basketballs. They don't have guns. No. Like, you need to go to a gun store. The most dangerous thing you can find is a baseball bat. (laughs) Yeah, you need to actually, like, get your gun permit and you need to go to a gun store. And it's a whole process um, because of the Montreal Massacre. So um, there was a huge surge in support for gun control laws in Canada after our deadliest, our first and deadliest mass shooting. You know, we, unlike some other countries that I won't specifically name because I do live in them. Uh, Peterson. No, wait. Other. <laughs> no, wrong. We're, we're American now. <laughs> Some countries ha- are, are being a little slow on the uptake, but Canada, uh, our first major mass shooting, huge surge in support for gun control laws. Um, we didn't we didn't ban guns. Um, I've met a lot nope, of Americans who actually are under the impression that gun ownership is banned in Canada. It's not. That's just um, a lie the NRA are... tells you. We actually have guns. <laughs> Like, guns. We have a lot of guns. Tons guns of guns. are quite obtainable. But um, uh, Heidi Rathjen, a student who had been present during the shooting but had survived because Mark bypassed her classroom, founded the Coalition for Gun Control with help from some of the victims' families. Their efforts culminated in the passing of the 1995 Firearms Act in Canada, mm-hmm. which massively overhauled national gun laws. Those new laws are mostly still in place today and include mandatory safety training for prospective gun owners, much stricter screening for potential gun owners, more intense regulation for the acquisition and storage of ammunition, and mandatory gun registry. The only part of this uh, law that actually doesn't survive to this day is that oh, um, Stephen Harper registry. scrapped yes, Stephen Harper scrapped the gun law, the long gun registry in 2012. So if you have a handgun in Canada, which is quite hard to acquire, um, that needs to be registered to you. So uh, the serial number, everything to do with that gun is registered to you. But long guns are now um, not on a national registry. Again, contrary to popular belief, semi-automatic guns, which is a gun that fires once every time you squeeze the trigger and is not to be to be reloaded between shots. Um, a, a full manual gun has to be reloaded between every shot. That is your fucking musket, I guess. Um, an automatic will just shoot That's multiple times gun. to one trigger squeeze. Yeah, a machine, machine gun. gun. <laughs> automatic guns have always been illegal in Canada. Um... They're also illegal in the States. <laughs> yeah, like, they're pretty much illegal everywhere. <laughs> a step too far even for the US of A. Nobody needs to hunt grouse with one of those. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Unless you live in a country where you wake up every day wondering which militia now controls your town, automatic weapons are probably not easy to acquire where you live. It's just, that's just how it is. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about semi-automatic weapons in the wake of mass shootings, and he did use a semi-automatic rifle, so a semi-automatic rifle is not necessarily that combat-style gun that you see. It just refers to a gun that fires once every time you squeeze the trigger. These are still legal in Canada, but they are much more difficult to get your hands on than a full manual gun, like a revolver. Um, and there are serious restrictions on the models and types that can be owned on a basic gun license. Other models are still available, but they do require a more advanced license, which requires more rigorous screening, more hours of training, and some models of guns are only legal when fired on shooting ranges in Canada. You cannot take them off the range. 
Um, despite all of these restrictions, guns are quite popular in Canada. Roughly 2 million Canadians have a basic firearm license in a country of 35 million people, and roughly 600,000 of those have a more advanced weapon license to let them have more than your basic weapon. Which is interesting um, because we have a much lower gun homicide rate than similar countries. Whoa, yeah. Our gun homicide rate is negligible. Whereas, I think our gun homicide rate is something like one-eighth the United yeah. States. Yeah, and, like, that it's, is per capita. Uh, That's not, like, if it wasn't per capita, that'd be crazy. That'd be, that would be mad mad Oh, yeah, shit. but I mean... But... Like, <laughs> Canada would just be a wasteland. We don't have enough people yeah. to have as many gun homicides as the United States. It would States. wipe us out. Uh, <laughs> like, it'd be like a Roanoke style. <laughs> you like, someone would come north of the border to visit their family or get some Timmies. And there'd just be, like, smears of blood and nobody there. <laughs> like, just... Somebody would have to, like, poke their head out of the top the sunroof and just start spraying bullets the minute you cross the border. That's not... <laughs> 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 that is yeah that's not okay the united states has triple the gun crime mm -hmm. rate this is not the gun murder rate this is the gun crime rate so any crime involving a gun in any capacity yeah um, and like if you if you if you find illegal guns in canada they are most certainly smuggled up from the u.s <laughs> yeah no for real my cousin did several years in prison for this um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's so fun when we can br bring in the CanCon and those personal anecdotes. Yeah, just these personal anecdotes. No, my, my cousin was a gun runner who uh, smuggled guns illegally into the country from the United States because they're very easy to obtain in the United States. And yes, he did do several years in a federal penitentiary for this. But uh, to our knowledge, he doesn't do it anymore. So <laughs> small good for him. Good for him. Um, good for him. But yeah, in terms of gun crime, uh, the United States are the very first in the developed world for gun crime. They bear number one. USA. 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 According to what year are these statistics? Uh, 2016. No, 2007. I guess this is the most recent year that uh, that this particular study was done. Yeah, they had triple the gun crime, and uh, the United States murder rate is 23 times higher than the Canadian murder it's rate. It's quite a bit. Which, quite it's a quite bit. a bit. It's 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 really a lot you higher. You kill each other a lot. Uh, Canada, ranks, Canada ranks 31st in the world for murder rate. The United States ranks 9th. Um, for for develop among developed nations. or Yeah, we're not counting, um, like, Nicaragua. <laughs> like, they got their own thing going on. no. <laughs> That's just unfair. <laughs> yeah, gun crime is, is at least... It's it's significantly higher in the United States, and it has been for a, a very long time. No, here we go. So, the most recent data available is from 2012. In 2012, the United States had 8,813 murders involving a firearm. Canada, in the same year, had 172 the vast majority of which were committed with guns that were smuggled in from America. Yeah, so, like, even when Canadians are getting shot, they're getting shot with American guns. God damn it, America. <laughs> Get your shit together. We want so little from you. But it's also <laughs> interesting because, like, Canada has had so few mass shootings that it's genuinely hard to extrapolate any meaningful data from them. We have. Yeah, this is true. Actually, we cannot... Canadians cannot compile statistics on mass shootings because we don't have enough of them. When you account for the difference in population, Canada is about one-tenth of the United States population. We don't have anything even approaching one-tenth of the mass shootings. 
Not not even close. <laughs> we just don't shoot each other that much. We have had only a handful of uh, school shootings. We had the Montreal Massacre in 89. We had the Tabor, Alberta shooting in 1999. This was several days after Columbine and was a Columbine copycat shooting. And then we had the 2006 Dawson College Massacre uh, in which one person died. Um, which is the same victim count as the uh, Tabor, Alberta shooting. So we've, we've had very few. Mm-hmm. We may have had a handful of minor ones here and there that I can't recall off the top of my head, but we have not had many at all. They're, like, New Brunswick has had, like, two mass shootings. Like, it's... Ever. Ever. <laughs> at all. <laughs> Fun fact, in recorded from 1966 onward, all the mass shootings done in the entire world by gun... Uh, 31% of them are done by an American gunman. So, really making a name for themselves. But no, and (laughs) seriously, Americans make up much less of the world's population than they think they do. Americans make up about 4.4% of the global population, but own 42% of the world's guns. (laughs) One for every man, woman, and child. Two if you're feeling saucy. I mean... It's actually probably more than one for every man, woman, and child. Like, there are some people who don't own any guns, but, like, some people own a lot. Oh, some people are throwing the curve. Some people have, like, a bunker of guns. So they're really... (laughs) They're just... They're throwing the whole curve. But, um... So, in terms... With the most recent available statistics, Canada's firearm homicide rate is seven times lower than that of the United States. Canadian support for strict gun laws has remained consistently high. Since the late 1980s, Canadians consistently report that they believe that Canada should have stricter gun laws than the United States. And a lot of Canadians are constantly in support of making our existing gun laws stricter than they are. Support for strict gun laws in Canada hovers around 65 to 70 percent of the population, which is high. Well, yeah, that's That's a very high. high considering that comparable statistics in the United States yeah, American support for um, stricter gun laws usually hovers at about half, which makes this, uh, at least according to the poll that I'm looking at, according um, to the Pew Global Report from 2012. So, um, sorry, somebody's being ambience. rushed to the hospital outside of my street. <laughs> it's being it's incredibly ambience. inconvenient for me. But um, a lot of... It's a very echoey street. I guess they're going straight down 2nd Avenue. Okay. The Montreal Massacre was the catalyst for Canada's strict gun laws, and in Canada, it takes a minimum of 45 days to get a firearms license, but it can take around eight months or more if you have complicated circumstances. So if you have a history of um, interactions with police, if you have mental health, I mean, if, if you have complicated circumstances, you tend to just not get approved, but if you have some complicated stuff going on, it can take you eight months to get a gun license. You must take and pass training courses, and the police will interview your spouse and your ex-partners to get the go-ahead to give you a gun license. Yeah, when you apply for a gun, you have to tell them who your exes are. Yep. And they will reach out to that per- those people and ask if they think that you're safe to have a gun. A lot of the analysis around Canadian gun laws has actually said that the reason Canadian gun laws are so effective is not because they're actually good at catching crazy people, for lack of a better term, but because people who are not quite right and want to use guns for nefarious purposes just don't think they're gonna pass the screening. No, no. 
if you're a person who has consistently been like, I hate feminists, I want to shoot up a hospital to everyone in your life, your whole life, you're not going to apply for a gun license in modern day Canada because like your friends and family will be interviewed about this. Yeah, it's going to bring and... you to immediate police scrutiny. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very and it's very easy to have your gun license revoked. Canada's gun license laws are they act as a deterrent because it's a huge pain in the ass. And if you already know that like, yeah, I'm trying to get this rifle to like shoot up a university and I've I've been pretty vocal about that for the last 10 years. You just know that there's no point. Yeah, we, we, we like to do our pre-screen rather than a post-screen because then you have to mop up less blood. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not going to tell you how to run your country. Tidy. But you'll notice that our gun homicide rate is one-seventh of yeah. the United States when you account for population. So, eh. N- neither me nor Janelle has been shot once. And I think only one of our Probably. parents have. Yeah, only one of our parents <laughs> have been shot. <laughs> so the statistics work out. <laughs> like, I mean, that's only I six think, people, but... <laughs> we're definitely bucking the average on that one. I think, <laughs> I think your average two Canadians will have had no parents shot. <laughs> so... <laughs> oh, boy. But in addition to gun laws, there have also been pushes to make other changes in the wake of the massacre and to remember the victims. So in Canada, December 6th is now the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women, and the massacres also sparked the creation of a new House of Commons subcommittee on the status of women. Like most House of Commons subcommittees, they have made numerous recommendations that have been mostly ignored. That's that's, what, that's basically what a subcommittee is before. That's what they're. That's every, what they do. <laughs> every now and then, a minority demographic in Canada starts getting real fussy about the way they're being treated, and so the Canadian government goes, "Aha! We will make a subcommittee, yeah. and this subcommittee will come forward with a beautiful, detailed list of recommendations, and then we do none of them." That's yes. what we did for the subcommittee on missing and murdered Indigenous women. We have done it to several indigenous issues, subcommittees, but I mean... It's like New Year's resolutions. They're mostly aspirational. Yeah, that's that's pretty much sums it up. But it did, it's a step. These things do account. There are also numerous memorials around the country to commemorate the victims, especially in Montreal. On the 25th anniversary, 14 searchlights were installed on Mount Royal, which is the mountain that overlooks the city. It's what the, what the on, city's named after. Mount Royal? Montreal. Yeah, Mount Royal, Montreal. It's just, uh, it's all squished together uh, with a weird accent. Look at that. Uh, I didn't know uh, that. It's, yeah, no, Montreal is named after the mountain that it's next to. It's not, it's not clever. <laughs> I'm from a place I called don't. Grand Prairie. I'm not here to judge. <laughs> That's it's real flat. It's big. <laughs> It's grand. It's it's technically grand in the French sense. Is it? It it just means large prairie. Big prairie. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that it's great. It doesn't mean that it's spectacular. It doesn't even mean that it's grand. It just means that it's huge, <laughs> big and uh, empty. That's what my hometown's name means. <laughs> yeah, your hometown basically translates to large, featureless patch of grass. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I wish it was more exciting than that, but um. For the 25th anniversary, 14 searchlights were installed on the summit of Mount Royal, looking over the city. On the 25th and the 30th anniversaries, these lights were lit up starting at 5.10pm on December 6th, the time the shooting started, as the victims' names were read aloud by current female polytechnique students. Which is a haunting way to commemorate that. The The whole ceremony is on the CBC YouTube channel, so you if, if you happen to be researching a... 
three-hour podcast about the Montreal Massacre, you can force yourself to watch a half-an-hour vigil while the victims' names are being uh, read and the searchlights are being lit up in the sky, and you can cry into a can of Pringles. That's something (laughs) you you can do right now. Nobody's stopping you. It's real fun if you're a female polytechnic student reading out the names of the women who you would have been killed in the stead of had you been born 30 years sooner. Pringles are already quite salty, so the tears will make them soggy, but they don't affect the taste. (laughs) Um, They basically already taste like sadness. It affects texture, but not taste. Um, There is also a scholarship handed out to female engineering students called the Order of the White Rose. Um, White ribbons and white roses have become a symbol of the massacre. Um, to commemorate the victims and to commemorate violence against women in Canada. But in general, this is one of the most horrific parts of modern Canadian history that our country has to find a way to grapple with. And it turns out that 30 years later, we are still trying to figure out how to do that. But yeah, fuck Mark LePay. That's what this is about. Fuck him. And uh, fuck everyone who idolizes him. Yeah. Fuck you in the eye socket. Mmm. Well, that was graphic. <laughs> I don't know. I can't imagine it. I think it's the brain injuries. Yep. If you know a sad, misguided man in your life who idolizes Mark LePin, you should make him go outside. <laughs> yeah, he, he... Do not give him a firearm. Or people are going to blame you. Do you get a vagina? You gotta watch yourself. Yeah. That has been, uh... An incredibly depressing two-part series on the Montreal Massacre. I've been having fun. I mean, I don't, I don't hope anybody enjoyed that, but I hope that you learned something. Um, I just had a long conversation with my best buddy Janelle, so I'm having a great time. Aw, that's adorable. What a, <laughs> what a heartwarming ending to a truly horrific. <laughs> I always it's enjoy weird our that talks. This... <laughs> This, this friendship is entirely based on, like, in-depth discussions about murder that we then record and put on the internet. Oh, yeah, we don't talk otherwise. <laughs> this is a very... We do we do sometimes, but it's mostly podcast-related. It's mostly business. <laughs> I think it's because, like, we're too similar, and therefore we don't really fit into each other's lives. It's like, why would I need another myself? <laughs> You are superfluous. You are competition. We have to live on opposite coasts because otherwise we will destroy each other. That's just it would just be inevitable. It's scarce resources uh, to turn to We're cannibalism. Like two, two poles of a magnet. We'll just, <laughs> just boing. can't be. We can't be forced together. Oh yeah! If I try but, to if um, I try to walk inland at the same time that Janelle is visiting the the inner inner states, we'll just sort of like bounce off of each other and get forced back to the coasts. I mean, as Canadian creatives, both of us are doomed to eventually move to Toronto. <laughs> this is this is the fate of all Canadians in creative fields, uh, or you, Canadians with creative aspirations. If you don't get sucked so, into the uh, eddy that is Vancouver, eventually you end up in Toronto. You might dally a while in Montreal, you get shot by a misogynist. But eventually, you and I will end up in... Separate but equally terrible neighborhoods of Toronto. It's gonna be good. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to it. But yeah, so if you're uh. if you're not Canadian or if you are Canadian and you didn't know that this happened, I hope you have learned a valuable lesson about Canadian history. We are not just. I don't have to feel sad now. Yeah, we're not just a fun, 
there's there's a dark part to Canadian history. This is not a country that is free of social problems. We're not the Disney version of America. No, we are not Disney America. We have our own unique social problems. This is one of them. We hope you've enjoyed, question mark, this episode. Yeah. Uh, I'm Jessica. And I am still Chanel. And we are fat, fat French, French, and, and fabulous. fabulous.